We're continuing our work, or our look through this, uh, through the book of Luke, at the the stories that surround Jesus's life and ministry, and many of those bring us across stories that he told, parables that he tells, that gives us a, a sort of framework for how to understand who we are as God's people and and our existence in the world, and and that's what we're looking at this morning. He tells the the parable of the ten minas. This is a a kingdom parable, and uh, it's really helpful, especially with this parable, to know kind of what came before and, and what came after uh, the telling of this story. It, it, it just gives a lot of light to it. So this story comes to us right right after Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. And uh, if you're not familiar with Zacchaeus, he was another one of those tax collectors that Jesus came across. And, he, uh, and, and that story tells us a couple of things. One is that God's kingdom does draw in social outcasts. Um, It is for that. But one of the reasons that we see salvation uh, come, or one of the the outworkings of Zacchaeus' salvation, is that he commits himself to give all of his possessions back to those that he's defrauded along the way. And so that story teaches us that that belonging to God's kingdom uh, has a significant impact on how we view our stuff, how we view our money and our time and and all of that. And, uh, and what comes right after this story is that Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He tells this story right outside the city, um, somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. And, uh, and you just got to wonder what must have been going on in the disciples' minds as Jesus continually nears the city. So for 10 chapters, we've been in what's called the journey narrative. And as, as we journey along with Jesus, Jesus is teaching us about what it means to to follow him, and, uh, and, and you've seen conflict escalate, uh, you've seen Jesus in confrontation, and uh, the disciples are looking at his arrival in Jerusalem as some kind of climactic moment when it's possible that Jesus is about to overthrow the order of things and establish his, God's kingdom on earth. And they are curious, am I about to witness with my very own eyes the establishment of God's kingdom in the next few days? That's the question that they're asking as they walk into the city. And it's in answering that question as Jesus tells this story, the parable of the ten minus. So let me read that to you. It's Luke chapter 19. I'll read verses 11 through 27 for you. Hear the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He therefore, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, 
which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we have arranged ourselves before you, and we sit under the authority of your word, and we ask that you might speak to us over these next few moments, that you might call us to an understanding of our place and our purpose in your kingdom, that you might reassure us of your love for us and our future held tightly in you, and that you might help me, your servant, to honor you with what I say and to love your people well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you uh, live pretty closely to your extended family. That's a, that's a real gift. I uh, grew up in central Virginia. I've talked about that before, but both my parents hailed from eastern Virginia in a place uh, in a city called Norfolk. Uh, the, the locals call it Norfolk. That's the way they pronounce it. But that's the Tidewater, like Virginia Beach, Chesapeake Bay area. That's where they're all from. And so during the holidays or summer trips, often we'd venture back that way. That was where our cousins were and grandparents and all of that. And uh, as a kid, I remember two things about that trip. Uh, one was just how interminably, interminably long it felt, like three hours for a child in a car. It just felt like forever. And, uh, and so the second thing I remember was at the end of that journey, uh, when we would arrive at my grandmother's house, uh, there was a little ritual I had, and it, and it was to go find my grandmother's banana pudding that she had made for us when we, when we got there. Um, and uh, I have learned over the past week or so that um, not everybody is fond of banana pudding, and uh, I would submit that that's just because you never met my grandmother. Uh, she, she's about this tall. She's probably Zacchaeus's height, okay? She was a wee little woman. She had a very large, distinctive laugh, and it came easily for her. You kind of knew where she was at all, at all times. And every time we would arrive at the house, I would just go straight for their refrigerator. She kept hers cold. Uh, I would go straight for the refrigerator to see if she had made that banana pudding. And she would always meet me there. And all these years later, I remember everything about that scene. I remember what her kitchen smelled like. I remember what uh, her laugh sounded like. I can still hear it. Uh, I remember the details of the dish that she always prepared it in and put it in the same place because she knew I would come looking for it and she wanted me to come find it. And that was our liturgy of arrival, and we replayed that scene over and over and over again from when I was a little boy until she passed away when I was a a young man. Those are very fond and precious moments for me. Why? Because even at a young age, 
I was asking questions my heart did not know how to articulate. And she was answering them for me. She was telling me that I had a place there. But she had prepared a place for me as I arrived at her home. And she was also giving me a purpose. And my purpose was to be with her and to eat that banana pudding right in front of her. She was answering two of the deepest questions of our own hearts. What's my place? And what's my purpose? And it occurs to me over time that that has been the operating question for the Christian throughout our existence. In many ways, uh, you see many of the letters written to the early church are trying to seek to answer that question for them in a lot of ways. How, How do you exist? How do you fit amongst the world that you live in? It was right there for them. It was right there for God's people as they walked into the promised lands. God was giving them lots of instructions about how they're, like, how, how they're to understand their place and their purpose in all of this. And, and, and in many ways for us as Christians, there's this, there's this feeling like we, there are times where we just feel like we just don't fit. Like often when we walk into our work or when we walk through our neighborhoods, when, uh, when, uh, when we go to visit our children at school, sometimes when we come into the church, there's this feeling like we just don't fit. And we're asking that question, how do I exist in this place? How am I supposed to carry myself? And I would submit to you that in this story, Jesus is actually attending to some of these deep questions in our hearts by giving us both a place and a purpose. He's giving us a framework for understanding how, what our place and our purpose is in this world while we wait for him to come, come back for us. I'm going to talk about our place, and then I'm going to talk about our purpose. And as we dig into our place, I just want to say three things. I'm going to say that he gives us a common allegiance, a common provider, and a common struggle. First, in the common allegiance, we see this common allegiance belonging to these servants. These servants represent Jesus' disciples, and they belong to the nobleman. He is in charge, and they are not. He is the nobleman who, who, uh, who is probably somebody of noble birth, And he rules over their kingdom, and they exist as his servants. He's in charge, and they are not. And so you can already see in this story, as the nobleman's about to leave the servants to to continue to persevere without him, you can already see Jesus preparing his disciples for the time when they will persevere in service without him, right next to them, without him around. So you see a common allegiance. You also see a common provider. That, uh, and, and that this nobleman is a really generous provider. He gives them a mina. He's got 10 servants. He gives each one one mina. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's either mina or mina. I'm going to go with mina because it makes more sense to me. But I could be wrong. But one mina was worth about three to four months of a laborer's wage. And so what he doesn't do is, is like give them a trust fund and say, here, you're set for life. Uh, do what you want. But what he does is he gives them seed money. He, he invests very generously in them and gives them more than enough to just get them started. And so he gives it, so they have this common provider. And what you see throughout the story is that there's no question in the servant's mind whose money this was. Like, even as you look forward in the story, you see in verses 16 and 18 when the first two servants give an account for their money, you see that they say, 
Lord, your mina. And so there's no misunderstanding how they understand the stuff that this, that this nobleman has given them to use. They have this common provider. It's his to give them, and they are primarily to see themselves as stewards of his generous gifts to them while he's away. So, uh, so you see a common provider. And you also see a common struggle. Uh, alongside these servants, you see another group of people, don't you? There are citizens who are living in protest against the rule of this nobleman over them. Did you catch that? That looks really curious, doesn't it? There's this other category of people in this story, and it's this whole group of people that are really upset at the rule of the, of the nobleman, and they're living in open rebellion against him, and, and so much so that they sent a delegation protesting his rule. Now, th- this this is really interesting. This actually happened uh, only a, a year or two before Jesus' arrival on, uh, on the scene. Um, Jesus, one commentator said that this whole story that Jesus tells actually played off the front page political context of the times in which Jesus lived. And what happened was, under Roman rule, the Jews sent a delegation to Rome protesting the rule of a Roman-appointed governor. And, and Jesus is lifting that story and saying, hey, that, that, the, the way that you treated that governor is the same way that you are treating God's rule over you. That in your discontent, you are actually projecting your discontent on Jesus himself and protesting his rule. And the common struggle for, for, for his servants is that they now have the burden to go out into a world where many are opposed to their master and somehow lean into that world and, uh, and develop their investment in it. They're supposed to engage in that world in an oppositional culture. And listen, in talking about our place, it's important that we see this. One of the things that Jesus is saying to his people and saying to you and me is the reassurance that Jesus has far more insight and depth of understanding in the world than we think he does. Have you ever wondered if God just seems like very far away, if he's even paying attention sometimes? Like, has that ever seemed to you like Jesus is far away and maybe his rule is a little aloof? Like, how many of our prayers are like, hey, um, Jesus, there's this thing going on over here, and I don't know if you know about it, but I want to call your attention to it. And one of the things Jesus is saying is that I understand the dynamics of this world, and I know that there are people that exist in the world that are opposed to my rule. And I also know the trouble that that causes you as you labor there will be those who oppose you in the same way that they're opposed to me. In fact, Jesus is, is predicting that this kind of confrontational, oppositional dynamic exists for both him and his people. And this is important for us to, for us to hear because it answers some of those questions about why do I, why do I feel like I, maybe I just don't fit here. It's like answering those questions of belonging. And Jesus is saying, hey, that's why. And there will be a time when I come back 
And I will answer those questions of belonging for you fully and finally. But until that day, this is the place that you're in. So there's some reassurance that he gives us, that he actually is a person of understanding and he does, he does know what faces us. But just as we see this simple reassurance, we also see something else that I think is important for us to wrestle with. And I think there's a call to self-examination in this passage. Like, did you notice there's no third category of people in relationship to noblemen in this, in this passage? Is it the mic? Is it me? No idea? Okay. Did you notice there's no third category here? Like, you either have servants that belong to the master, and then you have citizens that are living in open rebellion against them. And there's really no in-between. And this passage ends with judgment. Actually, if you read a lot of Jesus' parables, his kingdom parables, they all include some sense of judgment, uh, usually at the end of the passage. It's a reality that, uh, that Jesus actually talks about a lot. It might be kind of cringy for us and take us by surprise, but one of the things that Jesus is saying in this passage that we really have got to um, wrap our heads around is simply this, that our relationship to Jesus is of, utter, it is of utter importance. It's actually a life or death issue for us. And so I, I want to ask you this question. Just as somebody who loves you. Where do you fall in your relationship to Jesus? In Matthew 12, Jesus says, there's no in-between. He says, there are those who are for me and those who are against me. Where do you fall? And there are many of us here. We're all very different. We're all in different places in our relationship with Jesus. There's some of us here who are young in our faith, and some of us are wiser and more mature. But listen, if you belong to Jesus, then you belong to him. And if you don't, you don't. That's, what, that's one of the things this passage is saying. And I just want to challenge you to, to that sense of self-examination. Where are you in your relationship to Jesus? And if you do belong to Jesus... Then, then I want you to see that he provides for you generously. And in many ways, we, you know, in some ways, we, we might not ever understand just all the ways that Jesus is taking care of us this side of glory. But he does give us some things. He gives us provision. Yes, we understand like all of our material, our homes, our possessions, all of those are to be stewarded and used for the good of those we love and the good of our neighbors and for the good of God's kingdom. But he also gives us all kinds of other things. He gives us his word, which reveals himself to us and actually anchors us with truth um, and uh, is critically important. He gives us his church. This is his church that he loves. And he, he gives us each other as a way of encouraging us as a, uh, and sustaining us this, during this time while we wait for him. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. That is a meal that Jesus gave us that reminds us of his claim over our lives and his desire to sustain us while we wait. All of these are just a glimpse of the good gifts that God has given to us that sustain us. And one of the most precious ones is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. He is called our helper. He proclaims to us that we need to hear so badly. It's okay. We don't know what's going on, but it's okay. 
And so all these are just a glimpse of the things that we have that God generously gives us. And the question for us is really a simple one. What are we going to do with it? That's like, uh, are we white knuckle and kind of hold on until that moment? What are we going to do with what we have? As we understand our place, we also see that God gives us a purpose here. And it's a, it's a transcendent purpose to participate in the building of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. Jesus' kingdom is not coming immediately and suddenly, but what he's describing is a slow building of the kingdom. And he calls us to use what he's given us with a sense of creative engagement. Did you notice that there are like, there are no instructions that the nobleman gives them for what they're supposed to do with the, uh, with the mina that he gives them? And in fact, Jesus actually doesn't seem to make a big deal about what the, the noblemen, like how they actually put that money to use. In fact, there's, there's no like specific instruction at all. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, creatively engage the world. Use all that I've given you. Use the way that I've made you, the unique, unique talents you have, and the ways that I've provided for you, and in a way that honors our to Jesus, put all of those things to use with a sense of creativity and freedom for the building of the kingdom. That is the picture that Jesus gives us about what our joyful life this side of heaven should look like here on earth. Now, I love Legos, okay? I love Legos. I love Lego instructions. I love to set up a box with the picture of what I'm going to build and the step-by-step instructions that it gives me, there's something therapeutic about it. You know, like just kind of putting things together, it fits, it makes sense, and my mind comes, uh, like, becomes relaxed or something in all of that. But that's not the picture that Jesus gives us about what our lives are to look like in this passage. Sure, God gives us guidance as to, to how we're supposed to live. But he says within that, you have an immense amount of freedom for how you can lean into the world. It's like he dumps a bunch of Legos in our laps and says, go have fun with us. So he calls us to like creative engagement. But he's also calling us to know the Lord. This is where I'm going to land the plane. He is saying... He, what, what, what's going on with this third servant here? That might, have been, that might have been kind of tough to read, huh? Like the third servant comes and he says, Lord, I knew that you were a severe man. And so I was afraid and I hid this mina for you and a handkerchief and I didn't do what you told me to do. The, the word that we see severe there is the word that we get the word austere from. That's That's a a way of understanding the nobleman that had him paralyzed by fear, and so he couldn't move. If Jesus is saying, just go, the thing that held the third servant back was his fear that that, uh, that Jesus would judge him, or that the nobleman would judge him harshly. Now look, we've already seen that this nobleman is generous. He gave him more than enough that they needed. We also see that somehow when they put this, this investment to use, that the kingdom grows. Uh, in another place, Jesus describes the growth of the kingdom as like yeast through dough. It might be slow, but it's unstoppable. 
And one of the things we see here is how we feel about the character of Jesus will have a determining impact on our willingness to put what Jesus has given us and put it to use for the good of the kingdom and the world. And if we believe that Jesus is severe, if we believe that he is quick to anger and slow to forgive and exacting in his demands and incredibly hard on us, then we will be afraid to go do what this nobleman is calling his servants to do. This third servant was paralyzed with fear because he didn't know the character of the nobleman. But listen, if we understand Jesus as exceedingly gracious and generous, if we see him as slow to anger and quick to forgive, as someone who looks on us with eyes of love and a resolute commitment for us, that he himself is eager to come back for his people and establish the kingdom in his fullness, then it will give us immense freedom and energy and joy to take what we have and lean into the world with it. That's what he's calling us to. He is calling us to use what we know of Jesus and allow that to free us to lean in. What you think of who Jesus is will affect your willingness to do this. Now look, I I know how exhausted we all are all the time. I actually know how full many of your lives are. And there's a way of looking at this story and feeling like I have to do more. Like I need to find a way of continuing to produce as much as possible. And that's not actually what Jesus is telling us to do. He's telling us to know him and allow that to affect how we lean into the world. Jack Miller is this great pastor, um, just a great pastor. He's known in some circles. Um, but he was like this really effective communicator and he knew right how to speak to people's hearts. And two of his favorite questions, he just loved to ask questions. And two of his favorite questions are, what are you doing for no other reason than your love for Jesus? And what have you stopped doing only because you love Jesus? And as you look at your lives, as I think Jesus is calling us to do here, these are the questions Jesus is, asking, is calling us to ask. There's a movie that came out uh, back in 2004. I missed it right at the beginning when it came out, but I've come to love it since. It's called The Terminal. Uh, if, and many of you probably haven't seen it, but Tom Hanks plays this guy who, who's flying into New York City from his home country, which is in Eastern Europe. And, uh, and when he arrives in the terminal, what he finds is that he can't, uh, he can't actually gain access into the States because his home country was in open rebellion. Uh, they overthrew the government and his passport was no longer recognized by customs because, because, uh, because it wasn't the passport of a valid government anymore. And so he was stuck in the terminal. He couldn't like leave to go into America and he also couldn't fly home where there was a revolution. It's actually uh, based on this true story of a guy that lived in the Paris airport, I think, for like 18 years. <laughs> but, it, but it's a really sweet story because it teaches us about what life looks like in the in-between. Like he's in the terminal. What will he do with that time that he has? We see all kinds of incredible things. So we see him, he, he, develop, he makes friends with people. 
he learns the language and like builds a life. He, uh, he, he makes a home in this area that's under construction. And in, in one really sweet moment, he builds this beautiful wall. So he, he like creates beauty in this space that he's called to. He falls in love. Steven Spielberg directed it, and he said uh, he wanted to make a movie that could make us laugh and cry and feel good about the world. And in some way, I think that's a picture for us of all that's before us. But if the narrative that we inherit from birth is that we make our place of belonging, the narrative that Jesus is giving us is that he's building our place of belonging and he's giving us a part to play while we wait for him to return. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, you who perseveres with us, would you help us to persevere? Uh, You who places your identity upon us, Would you help us to live out our identity as your people in faithful, compelling, creative, engaging, and fun ways? And I pray that you would teach us what what a life looks like that you would call us to. And help us as your people uh, to, to, to encourage each other, support each other, and to serve you while we wait for you to come home. We pray these things in your name. Amen.